Well, hello again. Uh, this is part two of an unplanned two-parter episode. So, in particular with this one, if you haven't heard part one, I would recommend going back and doing that one, because there might be some running gags in this bit that don't make sense, even less than usual. Anyway, we are continuing our chat about Dionysus and Bacchus with an exploration of more drama and plays, so grab your glass of Retsina or whatever it is you decided to adopt after the last episode and enjoy. Oh, show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song, show me the way to go home. Right, would you like to return to the world of drama? Why not? Okay, here we go. The Bacchae by Euripides. Before I start, are you familiar with it at all? I'm not. No. Only because I'm aware that it is sometimes as like A-level set texts or things like that. It's, it's very much part of the canon. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, hopefully you enjoy this then. So The Bacchae, uh, it premiered posthumously at the Theatre of Dionysus in 405 BCE. So um, Euripides had died the year before, 406 it was probably staged by his son, who was also called Euripides, um, confusingly enough. And it would have been a part of a trilogy which also included Iphigenius Aulis and Alcmaeon um, in Corinth. And the play, The Bacchae, won first prize at the City Dionysia Festival competition in that year, 405. So The Bacchae is distinctive from other Greek dramas in that the chorus is very much integrated into the plot uh, as opposed to just being sort of slightly distant narrators and also the god which is normally also a distant presence and is just spoken about is actually a character in the play so Dionysus is actually the protagonist he's he's fully within the drama um Euripides often wrote plays that criticized religion and gods so it's likely that you can interpret this uh, of <laughs> this play being less about honouring and redeeming Dionysus as it was expressing concern for any ongoing rituals. But um, here's the plot. So Dionysus has returned from his travels in Asia that I, I told you about, according to legend, to uh, find that the mortal relatives of his mother, Samele, have been saying that he's not a god after all. And the king of Thebes, Thebes, by the way, was a central Greek city. There is a Thebes in Egypt as well, but this is the Greek Thebes. So the king of Thebes, Pentheus, has outlawed celebrations in honour of Dionysus. Pentheus is actually Dionysus's cousin. Um, so Dionysus, disguised as a mortal foreigner, who's like the leader of the cult of Dionysus, so not actually Dionysus himself, but just like one of the priests or something, comes back from Asia with all his followers, who are called Maenads. Um, so he includes the women of Thebes in driving up this frenzy, and it, which includes his aunts and, crucially, Pentheus's mother, Agarwe, 
it looks like it's spelled agave, like the tequila. But it's agave because it's Greek. Um, <laughs> so he sends all of those women into this ritual frenzy on a mountaintop. Pentheus calls for the arrest and the stoning of this stranger, as he sees it. And when he's caught, he ties him to an angry bull in the stable, again with the bulls. <laughs> but Dionysus breaks free and he raises the palace with an earthquake and fire. Quite how that was performed, we're not sure, because there's, there's no other earthquakes in Greek dramas, but it must have been impressive. Um, anyway, in the story, uh, meanwhile, the shepherds from the mountain enter to say that the, the Bacchae, um, the Minads, attacked them when they tried to intervene to get them to stop. And the Bacchae chased them and ripped apart their animals and then they went and plundered the villages, driving people away with their thyrsus, you know, that stick. Um, after which they returned to the mountain and they were licked clean by snakes as they breastfed animals. Ooh. Sound like a bunch of lads, don't they? That's a lot. <laughs> There's yep. a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're only halfway through. Uh, <laughs> so, Pentheus is planning to send in the army to deal with them, with these crazed women. But Dionysus, who's still in disguise persuades him that it would be better to spy on them first of all with Pentheus dressed as um, a maenad, one of the Bacchae, to avoid detection. So Pentheus, who's been completely against dressing up like this and celebrating Dionysus in any way, is clearly now under the thrall of Dionysus because he's like, that's a great idea. I will dress up like a woman who's worshipping Dionysus and just go and hide. Um, so he dresses up, he's being given a, a thyrsus and um, fawn skins. He even says in the play, he's like, which hand should I hold the thyrsus in to look authentic Dionysus? There's a lot of things <laughs> in the play where Dionysus is sort of acting as director and people are dressing up in, in drag or like the old men are on their way to the celebration, obviously look ridiculous because they're not supposed to, um, you know, be dressed up for it. I think I've just thought of a great pun. Yep. <laughs> Remind me again the name of the big stick. Thursus. Thurs first. <laughs> thirst first. <laughs> so Pentheus goes in walking thirst first. <laughs> um, and uh, you know he's he's now sort of starting to see horns growing out of the the head of this stranger. Um, he believes he now has super strength for some reason, and he can rip up the mountain with his bare hands. Um, and he goes up the mountain, so they go to uh, Kithirum. Then all the action in Greek drama happens off stage. We just get told about it, mostly. Um, which, you know, might be seen as a bit of a downer through our eyes, like, oh, you want to see people getting ripped up and stuff. But I think for the Greeks, it was more horrific to imagine this sort of stuff than to see it performed badly. You know, they had more references in their head that they could go into. So I sort of get, I quite like Anyway, a messenger arrives to report that once they reached the mountain, Pentheus wanted to climb an evergreen tree to get a better view, and that Dionysus used his divine power to bend down the tall tree and place the king in the highest branches, saying, don't worry, you won't be seen there. But then Dionysus reveals himself. Um, <laughs> um, I've got a bit later on about how gods always reveal themselves. Anyway, he revealed himself and calls out to his followers, and pointed him out in the tree. <laughs> like, there he is! Um, which drives the Maenads wild. So then, led by Pentheus's mother, Agarwe, 
they force the trapped Pentheus down from the treetop. At first, they're like throwing things at him. You know, they're trying to climb the tree. Uh, they're throwing their thyrses and that doesn't work. So what they do is they collectively uproot the, the tree. Uh, they take it up by the roots and so it comes crashing down. Then Agarwe rips off her son's arm and she doesn't notice her son. And uh, all his aunts tear him, tear his head off and his limbs and his body's torn into lots and lots of pieces. There's a very graphic thing about his uncle coming along later on trying to like lift up rocks to find the bits of him to put back together. Anyway, um, Agarwe arrives carrying her son's bloodied head. And she thinks it's the head of a mountain lion that she's just torn apart. So she goes to her father, Cadmus, who's like the founder of Thebes um, and the former king. And she's confused when he's not delighted, uh, but horrified by it instead. So, uh, and she's calling, Pentheus, come and look at what I've done. Um, And wants to nail the head above her door so she can show it to all of Thebes. But eventually... The Dionysiac madness starts to uh, disappear and Cadmus sort of forces her to recognise that she has destroyed her own son. And it doesn't end well for uh, the rest of the family because they get turned into snakes. <laughs> so that's the back eye. What do you think? <laughs> it's a real page turner. <laughs> Bloody hell. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, it's a very extreme representation of the worship of Dionysus. Um, there have been so many interpretations as to kind of what that really means, but I think we have to resist the urge to think that the tragedies were necessarily commenting too much on current events, especially because we don't know when that play was written. Because it's mm. posthumous, it might have been written years before and his son just kind of found it and, and put it on. But what I can tell you is that in this year, Athens was facing an existential crisis. There was plague coming in um you know the walls were about to go down they were gonna be taken over by sparta who was a military dictatorship it was was a threat not only to their city but to the democracy of greece as a whole and Mm -hmm. as we now know that all didn't end very well so they're really facing an existential threat when they're looking at this anyway um i'm gonna tell you a little bit more about the dionysia festival then so the city version so on the first day of the festival they have what they call the pomp uh the procession where the citizens and representatives from um, all the Athenian colonies marched to the theatre of Dionysus, which was on the southern slope of the Acropolis. So, you know, where like, all the big temples are. Um, when I say all the Athenian colonies as well, like this is a huge festival. It's not just for the city. It's for all of broader Greece and foreigners. It is like the International Edinburgh Fringe Festival <laughs> that they're all coming in for. So they go off carrying a wooden statue of uh, Dionysus and um, they, as I said, in the same way, they carry phalluses, much larger, made of wood and bronze, aloft on poles. And they also have one really big phallus that they pull along in a cart. (laughs) Wow. Yes. And they still have all the wine carriers and basket carriers as well. Um. They also brought along bulls to sacrifice, again with the bulls, um, and they would actually sacrifice those in the theatre as part of the opening ceremonies. Uh, the most conspicuous members of the procession would be what were called the Choreogoi, chorus leaders. Um, and they would be dressed in the most expensive and ornate clothing. Essentially, they were the sponsors. So if you had 
um, a chorus performing a play in the festival, they would be sponsored by someone, you know, wealthy who would want to show off, you know, all their beautiful textiles or jewellery or, or whatever. And it was a way to kind of really display their hometown. Mm-hmm. Um, so after that, they have what are called um, dithyrambic competitions, which were with uh, poetry and a flute. So they were very competitive. They'd have the best flute players and the celebrity poets offering their uh, musical and their lyrical services. And then after that's when the bulls get sacrificed and they hold, uh, hold a big feast for the citizens of Athens. Following that kind of more formal procession, there's a second procession called the Comos. The Comos, by the way, is possibly where we get comedy from. Um, as one of the the etymologies from this second procession but this is basically the great big drunken revelry through the streets so they've done all the formal stuff they've had kind of like the first little competition with a poet and a flute now everyone gets really drunk and revels through the streets and it was you know supposedly quite uncivilized um the next day the playwrights announce the title of the plays that are going to be performed and then there are judges that are selected by lot um, and again, that probably happened, we at least know, uh, later at the foot of the Acropolis. Uh, that's called the Proagon, Proagon, which is like the pre-contest. And they would use that period of time as well to give praise to notable citizens or, or even foreigners who had served Athens in some beneficial way during the year. So it's kind of like, you know, the opening of a, a big film awards ceremony or something where they're like, oh, and thanks to these people and thanks to these people. Um, during the big war they had as well, process the Peloponnesian War, they would also have the orphan children of people killed in battle come and uh, be part of the parade to honour their fathers. And it would be used for other important announcements. So, for example, the, the previous year in 406 BC, that was when the death of Euripides was announced. So he announced his death in 406 at the festival, and then the next year was his final play performed, the Bacchae. Um, according to the tradition... Of the Dionysia, the first performance of a tragedy ever in 534 BCE was from the playwright and actor Thespis. That's where we get the word thespian from, for people who are actors. And I was going to say, his... he's on brand. <laughs> yes, he, yeah, yeah, exactly. Other way around. Um, his award for winning was reportedly that he was given a goat, which is, you know, another common symbol of Dionysus. Um, and the word tragedy in Greek means goat song. So we think that's probably where it comes from. It's the fact that if you won the prize of the goats, it would be for your kind of goat winning songs. So that's where tragedy comes from. So we've got tragedy and comedy now. Tragedy. During the um, 5th century BCE, uh, five days of the festival would be set aside for performance. Um, three full days were for the tragic plays. Um, and each of the playwrights would present three tragedies, which were usually connected. So you basically present a trilogy and then on the end you get to do a satire play. So it's like, I've done my big three tragedies. Here's, here's a comedy. So the tragedians would get to write a comedy. Uh, the other two days of the festival were these uh, dithyrambic contests. And then in from about 487 or 6 BCE, comic poets were finally allowed to um, enter their plays and be eligible for prizes because there'd been a bit of snobbery as to tragedy versus comedy. Who'd have thought <laughs> it? Um, so each of the comic writers could present a single play. 
because um, up until like 449 only dramatic works were actually awarded prizes um, but after that time actors also became eligible for recognition so the first actor awards happened after 449 um, and then it also became like a great honor to win the comedic prize at the city design this year as well despite the belief that comedies were secondary importance to tragedies and then there's also the Linnea Festival, um, which would have been held earlier in the year because the Dionysia Festival was um, the spring equinox, essentially. And the Linnea Festival was more like the comedy festival. So that's more like the fringe festival from the Edinburgh International Festival. Um, and then every year, at least one revival would be presented. Um, and that continued until the second century BCE when it seemed that it was only revivals from that point. Nothing was new anymore. It was all remakes. Um, and so you didn't get any new kind of comedies or tragedies, really, which is a tragedy. Um, and the prizes that were given were obviously no longer going to the playwrights because they were all dead. So they would just go to like the wealthy producers and the famous actors. No modern parallels at all um, no. with, with what happened there. <laughs> The final day of the of this um, celebration, the judges would choose the winners uh, of the tragedies and comedies, and then the winning playwrights would get awarded a wreath of ivy, which is obviously reminiscent of Dionysus. Um, there's another play I want to tell you about, which won first place at the Linnea Festival, um, which was um, three months before Euripides won for the Bacchae which is The Frogs by Aristophanes. So this is a comedy play and it tells the story again of the god Dionysus who is despairing of the state of Athens tragedians. So he travels to Hades, which is the underworld, because he wants to bring back the playwright Euripides back from the dead to come and write again because there are no more good tragedians. He's been dead a few months at this point. Like, he's very recently dead. <laughs> um, so Dionysus brings along his slave Xanthius. And in this portrayal, Xanthius is, like, smart and brave, and Dionysus is exactly the opposite. So they were really not afraid of mocking authority and gods and, you know, people at um, dramatic performances. So as the play opens, they're arguing Xanthius and Dionysus as to what would be the best opening joke <laughs> for the play. It's all the comedies in particular are very meta theatrical. They're very aware that they're doing a play. Um, so for the first half, Dionysus is making lots of errors, and Xanthius has to kind of improvise in order to um, uh, protect his master, and that just makes Dionysus even more incompetent. Um, so in order to try and find a path to Hades to go and bring back Euripides, Dionysus decides to go and seek advice from Heracles, or Hercules, as you might know him, who is his half brother. Um, because Heracles has been there before one of his trials was to um, go and collect Cerberus from hell so Dionysus shows up on the doorstep of uh, Heracles and he's wearing Dionysus is dressed up in a lion hide and he's carrying a club so he's dressed up like Heracles is meant to look and Heracles looks at the effeminate Dionysus dressed up like himself and sees the funny side of it and has a good laugh <laughs> Um, Dionysus asks what road is the quickest to Hades and Heracles says well you can hang yourself you can drink poison you can jump off a tower and Dionysus is like I meant without dying so uh, he goes on this long journey across Lake Acheron which is uh, the, the, the lake on the way into hell or Hades um, that's when we 
meet the chorus of the play, which are a chorus of frogs. Great. I'm not going to say he was inspired by Paul McCartney, but who knows? Um, <laughs> and the frogs keep croaking all the time. Brekkakakakex, coax, coax. And it's really annoying Dionysus. He cannot deal with the chorus and keeps arguing with them. Uh, anyway, they make it into the underworld. At that point, they meet um, Iacus, who mistakes Dionysus for the actual Heracles, even in his ridiculous attire. <laughs> um, and he's angry with Heracles because Heracles stole Cerberus. So Iacus says he's going to unleash monsters on him in revenge. So because he's frightened, Dionysus trades clothes with Xanthius, his slave. And then while um, Iacus is off doing his thing, a maid arrives and is like, ooh, sexy Heracles, come into this feast with lots of virgin dancing girls. And Xanthius is like, okay. Um, but then Dionysus <laughs> is like, no, no, I want to trade back clothes. So uh, <laughs> Dionysus gets back into Heracles' lion skin so he can go to this party. But even more angry people arrive um, who are angry at Heracles. And so he trades back again <laughs> for a third time with Xanthius. <laughs> which, so Xanthius is now dressed up as Heracles. Um, Iacus returns to confront Heracles and Xanthius says, well, rather than uh, take me, why don't you take my slave? You can torture him and uh, obtain the truth as to whether or not he really is a thief. And at that point, Dionysus is like, okay, I'm a god. Stop messing with me. So he reveals himself as a god. And then we get back to sort of the core plot, which is bringing Euripides back from Hades. Um, so he's only just died. He's challenging the great playwright Aeschylus, who um, is also dead for the seat of the best tragic poets at the dinner table of Pluto, who's the ruler of the underworld. And they hold a contest with Dionysus as the judge. And the two playwrights take it in turns quoting verses from their plays and making fun of each other. Euripides sort of says that his characters are better because they're more true to life and logical. And Aeschylus says that his characters are idealised and that's better because they're heroic and models for virtue. And on it goes with like real examples from their plays. And then to end the debate... They say, uh, let's bring in, a, in a scales in a balance. And you each say a few lines into it. And whoever's lines have the most weight will cause the balance to tip in their favor. So Euripides brings out these verses. And it talks about things like the ship, the Argo, and persuasion, and a mace. And then Aeschylus talks about the river Spercaeus and death, and two crashed chariots, and two dead charioteers. And because the latter has heavier objects in it, Aeschylus wins. But Dionysus is still not sure who he wants to revive. So he says, give me advice about how to save the city of Athens. Bearing in mind Athens is going through an existential crisis. Euripides gives some cleverly worded but essentially meaningless answers, whereas Aeschylus provides practical advice. So Dionysus decides he's going to take Aeschylus back instead of Euripides. So Pluto says, okay. You can do that. Um, Aeschylus can go back and help Athens. Let's all have some farewell drinks first. They have a big piss up. And then as they're leaving, um, Aeschylus says, oh, um, Sophocles can have my greatest tragedy and playwright chair while I'm gone, not you, Euripides. <laughs> Which seems very out of the blue mention for poor Sophocles, but it's because Sophocles died even after Euripides. So the play had already been written and Aristophanes only had time to sandwich him in at the end. So he just arrives in at the end and is like, oh, I'm here as well. But they've, they're in, you know, they've got this existential crisis. They've lost recently their three biggest, still the biggest, most famous playwrights. So, um, you know, it's a little sort of comedy homage to them. I was nice. going to tell you about deus ex machina, which is a phrase you might have heard of. Mm, I don't think I have. It's usually referred to as like 
um, when stories are rounded off neatly, um, okay. God from the machine, it literally means. So, um, yeah, sometimes you have like these stories where everything's suddenly wrapped up very neatly and you're like, well, where did that solution come from? Mm-hmm. That would be referred to as a deus ex machina. Okay. Um, it comes from Greek drama, literally meaning God from the machine, because um, actors who are playing gods would be brought onto stage using a machine like a crane. Um, so they would lower actors from above or they would have <laughs> trapdoors and they would come up through the trapdoor. Um, which is when I said, you know, Dionysus earlier revealed himself, it would have been with that. He would have like been lowered on with a crane onto the stage. <laughs> In another of um, Aristophanes' plays, which was written actually before Euripides the Bacchae, Thesmophoria's Azuzai, um, he uses the crane a lot to make fun of Euripides because Euripides, again, is a character in his play. <laughs> Poor Euripides and Aristophanes' is barbs. But he's a play who keeps coming onto the stage by, via a crane <laughs> because he's making fun of the fact that Euripides always puts his gods as, like, have this um, deus ex machina moment where they're like, I'm a god, I'm coming on in a crane. So Aristophanes just does it all the time in this play with Euripides coming on on a crane, <laughs> which I think is... Brilliant. But interestingly, that play is about um, a a group of women performing a ritual and a man disguises himself as a woman to try and infiltrate them. They discover and they kill him. So it's got the same sort of plot as the Bacchae, except that in Aristophanes' play, they do it knowingly. Sort of they know what's happened. They make a decision. They're like, we're going to kill you. In Euripides' version... The women are affected by the god. They're like under his control. So it's not really them acting on their own free will when they do this. And we don't know whether they did it because they think he's an animal or because he's a man or because he's a spy. It's all a little bit more ambiguous. Mm. So, um, but there's an, there's an interesting tension um, between, you know, the tragic and the comedic playwrights, which I, when you read them together are really fun when you read them in complete isolation you're like what are they talking about (laughs) but it just makes me really really wish i could uh, see be part of that experience to see all those plays in that big festival over several days watching all of those plays and seeing that banter back between each other you can only imagine for the crowd it must have been absolutely electric and having people from all over this vast empire kind of come in and be a part of it too all sat there with a wang and a stick Stack with it with a wang on wang on a stick in one hand and wine in the other. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I have got some more to say about kind of what happens after the classical age, but um, I need a drink break myself now. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier how I really want to go to Greece. <laughs> mm-hmm. I use this podcast as an excuse to essentially plan a trip. <laughs> Um, making plans as always yeah so i looked into just basically the best places to go in greece for wine turns out there's a lot of wine tourism there uh so i got the top five places to go to enjoy lots of wine in greece uh so we're gonna go straight in uh with santorini sure we've all heard of santorini Mm -hmm. Um, it's beautiful very picturesque so i'm not going to go and sell that to you guys you know already Uh, I'll just talk about the wine. Uh, Santorina has a very long winemaking tradition and some of the most important grape varieties are grown there. Um, So the most famous wines from Santorini are the Asiritico, which is a white wine found in um, aged and young oats. And 
as well as that one, they've got Vin Santo, which is a sweet wine made from the same grape, and it's aged for at least three years in casks before it's released. Um, so as a result of the abundance of grapes and famous wines, they have opened numerous wineries for visitation and tastings. So that is on my list. Uh, next one is Paros. So Paros is uh, dubbed to be a kind of up-and-coming tourism area of Greece because it's got everything you want, really. It's got um, sandy beaches, lots of fantastic food, history, culture, nightlife, lots going on. Um, but when it comes to wine, it's quite interesting because um, the climate there is ideal for its um, wine and grape growing. Uh, they have mild winters, not much rain, hot summers, uh, with an increased humidity and cool winds. Uh, the vineyards there, um, they employ a technique called aploteria, which is where the vines are grown in a way that they spread along the soil parallel with the ground so that the leaves and the seeds are protected from the wind and the sun. Um, and it's actually, Paros is one of the only islands in the Cyclades, apart from Santorini, um, that can pride itself on the fact that they have a protected designation of origin wine. Um, they've, they've been kind of seen to have such a unique characteristic for their grape and their wine that they've been given the PDO. Mm. Um, another one that you'll probably be very familiar with is Crete, uh, mm. the most southern and largest Greek island, uh, very popular already as a holiday destination, but it's doing very, very well with regards to wine as well, because it's known to have some of the most well-organized Greek wineries there. Um, so they've also produced some important great varieties and wines. The Cretans are very proud of their wines. Um, and one of the top tips when you're visiting there is as well as doing a wine tour, combine it with a cooking lesson. Taste sensations guaranteed. Um, another lesser known one is Nemea. That's uh, about an hour's drive from Athens. It's about 35 kilometers southwest of Corinth. Um, so it's a really small village of Nemea. It's Greece's largest and most important red wine appellation. Uh, so there are more than 40 wineries in the area. Some of them are quite famous. Um, the production here is focused on Ajorgetico, which is their native grape variety, and it's taken its name from the Church of St. George. Uh, lots of wines are made from this red grape. Um, they're quite rich, age-worthy and dry, but they also do make uh, lighter, sweeter red wines as well. So if you like your red wine, Nemea is the place to be. Um, last one on the list is, again, somewhere I hadn't heard of, uh, Nausha. Nausha is located in northern Greece, and it was actually Greece's first wine region to be given its own official appellation. Uh, that was in 1971, and it actually served as a model for the whole appellation system in Greece. Um, unlike most of the wine regions, the climate there is more continental, it's less Mediterranean. The vineyards are predominantly located on limestone-rich clay soils, which gives the wine an extra structure and just bolder, fruity characteristics. So um, it sounds like Nausha and um, Nemea have slightly kind of less 
traditional Greek wines with the red wine and the quite bold structured fruits, whereas Santorini, Crete and Paros have the more traditional wines, but all great wines nonetheless. So if you want to do a little tour of wine in Greece, there's your list. Santorini, I, Paros, Crete, Nemea and Nosha. I do want to. They sound great. I want to do all of them um, <laughs> and sail between them like pirates. Oh, yes, please. Let's <laughs> add that to the list. Add, add it to the list. I mean, Whatever before we started list. recording this podcast, we were talking about how I keep adding things to the list. So mm-hmm. shall I add those five places? Yes. Yeah. I also yeah. want to add walking around with a wang on a stick with a jar of wine in a basket. I don't for a second believe you haven't already done that. Well, <laughs> I've done it in Swansea, but I'd like to do it in Greece. So I think I'd sure. be better, yeah. better perception we've all, that. We've all heard the Beaujolais Day episode. <laughs> uh, <laughs> shall, I, shall I round up with a little bit of what happens after the classical age? Yes, please. This is very quick because I, so a lot of this is going to go into other episodes, I think. But um, the last known worshippers of kind of the, the Greek and Roman gods were converted, you know, by the, t- the end of the first millennium, by 1000 AD. Um, although there are obviously some instances where you still see evidence of worship, particularly of someone like Dionysus, um, during the medieval and early modern periods, mostly because it's really fun, I would suggest. Um, there's one particular instance um, that I've seen in the Lanacos Chronicle, which is Scottish. And this is during Easter in 1282. And the parish priest of Inverkeithing is leading the the young women of the region in a dance in honour of Father Liber uh, and Priapus. So the the Dionysus festivities and ceremony. So he's dancing and singing at the front, carrying a big phallus on a pole. <laughs> and uh, he got into trouble for doing that, uh, being oh. a priest and dancing around to Dionysiac festivities I mean, with a big wang. We know, we know priests so, have um, done a lot worse. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Where has happened? Uh, well, I mean, this is all we've got in the record anyway. But either way, he was then later killed by a Christian mob. <laughs> so don't do that if you're going to visit 13th century Scotland, I guess. I'm just um, going to scratch walking around with a wang off the list. <laughs> yeah, choose choose your area carefully, I think. Um, as, I, as I said, the kind of Bacchanal coming into common usage as a great big party, I think probably, if not from the Renaissance, came from 18th century um, Britain because we see it come in to the, to the language of the Hellfire Club which is a subversive organisation that I'm going to talk to you about when we get to Halloween, to our next Halloween episode, because mm. their, their sort of president of the Hellfire Club is the devil. So I thought that would make a good um, uh, Halloween episode, but put a pin in that thought. But it's definitely where we see the re-emergence of Dionysian worship. Uh, the other one I want to say for the future is the drinking vessels associated with Dionysus because I think they deserve something in their own right as well, Ooh, the Greek okay. drinking bowls. But what I will end with is um, a little bit of the legacy of the Bacchae as a play because even though it was obviously super popular in ancient Greece, it doesn't get performed for a very long time um, after they stopped performing it at that festival. Largely because even when 
um, the classical kind of place and stories of being rediscovered in the Renaissance and, you know, being um, adapted and rewritten by um, other playwrights all through kind of restoration and so on. The Bacchae is not one of them. I think obviously because it's so violent. Um, it's so grim. <laughs> it's so about kind of civilization gone wrong that people just felt like it was a subject that they couldn't really handle. And so the earliest record we have of the Bacchae being reperformed is in London in 1908. So it takes a really long time for it to have a comeback. I think the why that period of time, I think at the end of the 19th century, there's a couple of things. One is that there is um, more historical research into what the ancient Greeks were actually like, as opposed to this version that had been built up about them by the Renaissance, saying that they were like really super civilized and they were all in clean white togas and talking about philosophy all of a sudden in the 19th century people are like oh actually they did really horrific things as well you know <laughs> slavery and um uh, all these sort of blood rituals and bits of cannibalism and things like that and so there was a resurgence of interest in actually the darker side of the ancient world and all the rituals and mysticism that would come out of it the other thing is that nietzsche um he he of the favorite of emos um, wrote, wrote a, a book on the birth of tragedy where he explored some kind of like the really early tragedy tragedy texts and the Bacchae was central to that and he was explaining kind of why tragedy you know works the way it does so I think following those things it, it emerged back into the public consciousness as something that might be worth exploring and a guy called William Pohl took it on and um, he infused a lot of the ritual elements back into it uh, and in order to evoke that sense of mysticism, uh, he actually used Welsh language for ritual scenes. Wow, wow. So the first reemergence for literally millennia of, <laughs> of the back eye was partly in Welsh. Um, and it had a really interesting cast because Dionysus was played by a woman um, who was a, a famous feminist actor of that time. And in fact, the woman who played Agawe... Um, you know, who tears up her son, um, had only recently been arrested for uh, supporting the women's suffrage movement. Um, <laughs> and I think it was performed at the Royal Court. So it was very closely tied into uh, feminism and the suffrage movement of the early 20th century. That was the drive behind it. You can see why. You can mm -hmm. see why a group of women coming together to tear down a man who was spying on them and had broken the bounds of civilization appeals to feminist interpretations and it often still does even today um but we see it used in a sort of similar way for other issues as well so in the 1960s um a, a famous theater producer called Schechner um in New York I think this was uh, produced a version which was very naked it was very gay uh, you know they they rewrote a lot of it to be quite um, explicit in that way and it was all about sexual liberation in the 1960s but they used it in exactly the same way they evoked kind of the rituals of Dionysus to um, you know subvert whatever the norm was and it happened again in the 1970s when I think it was the Royal um, the National Theatre asked Wally Shoyenka to do a version of the Bacchae which was very post-colonial um, and instead looked at kind of the legitimacy of 
having a sacrifice of some kind in order to overcome an oppressor and you know be your own society so it's a play that's like a touchstone for every enthusiastic dramatist that wants to make uh, a statement about whatever political climate they're in at the moment so it's a play that very much has stood the test of time in you know at least the 20th and 21st centuries and i'll give you one more recommendation if you want to do some further reading that's not Greek drama, <laughs> that's not The Back Eye of the Frogs, although I do recommend it, uh, then there's a book called The Secret History by Donna Tartt. And um, it's about a bunch of classic students who want to try and recreate those um, those sort of bacchanal, those bacchic days. And they're, very, they're trying to sort of create a neo-pagan cult, as it were. And they get very involved with... Um, the kind of rituals that we might see in the back eye and i won't spoil it by saying what's happened but i'm pretty sure you can guess where it goes <laughs> <laughs> and that's a modern that's a modern story from probably a decade or two ago there you go i enjoyed that yeah i mean it's going to be one of our longest episodes even though i decided not to talk about drinking bowls or the symposium <laughs> or other things but i make no apologies because this is the god of wine we're talking about he deserves our full attention <laughs> <laughs> any closing thoughts i'm still trying to think about if we did a modern day adaptation of it and we needed a welsh woman to play dionysus who would who would do it i think it would think- be Ruth Jones, a.k.a. Nessa. <laughs> I mean, I was going to oh. say you, but then what's the difference? <laughs> True. Oh. oh. How would you get to 80s? <laughs> oh. And so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to honour the gods by pouring some more until, in a frenzied fervour, we do something we'll regret. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. I did that already. <laughs> many, many times over. You can always hear me sing in the song. Show me the way to go home.